Good evening, everybody, and welcome to an episode of Third Impact Anime. I am your not-usual host, Bill. Uh, Hopefully, I have all my memories intact. And with me today is Tobias. Yo, yo! And Edwin. Yo! (laughs) Maybe, maybe Yo-Yo could help us guide through the wonderful maze that is the show we're going to be talking about, Kaiba. Now, I know what you're thinking. Kaiba, are you guys going to be talking about the character Kaiba from Yu-Gi-Oh? Wow, I could understand that confusion, and I did love that English dub actor for Kaiba. We are not going to be talking about so no Hearth of the Cards jokes for me. No Hearthstone talk. Aw, man. One day. One day. We are going to be talking about the 2008 series Kaiba, which was directed by... Our favorites, Misaki Yuasa. But before we get into that, let's start talking about what we've been up to, what we've been playing, uh, what we've been watching. So, uh, Edwin, why don't you go first? I've been quarantined out my mind. I've been playing Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles, Minecraft, and I've been watching World War II documentaries. Nice. Uh, so, so you've not gotten sucked into the uh, Final Fantasy VII remake black hole, like everybody else. I don't play RPGs. Isn't Crystal Chronicles? Isn't Crystal Chronicles an RPG? I was forced to do that for mid shelf gaming. You were forced. You were forced yeah. to play Crystal Chronicles. Yes, because two out of three majority rule vote. Did you? Did you guys play with the uh, the Game Boy Advances, Daisy Chained, and all that stuff? I couldn't find mine. Oh no. I think uh, I think I got to play that game multiplayer once, way back in high school. Managed to round up all the hardware needed, and I played it for like an hour, and that was my entire Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles experience. That one. It's game getting a remake game. this year, so if you want to get it on Switch, I'll tag along with you. They they keep saying they're going to do it, but no, it's, it's confirmed not. for this year. Well, let's not count our chickens for they hatch, there, buddy. We'll see if they actually put it out. But no, I'll put five dollars down. You want to put five dollars down? It's coming out this year. I'll put. Uh, I'll. I'll put. I'll, yeah, sure. Let's do it. Five dollars. Five dollars. All right, and I am your third party witness. So if they announce Chris, let's 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 say 
if they don't, let's say what's the bet rules are, Nintendo has to either announce Crystal Chronicles coming to Switch either sometime in June or at least by... No, no, it's got to be out. It's no. got to be out in 2020. So oh, it's got to be out in 2020. Okay, they, they can't just announce it. They can't just because it's not going to be only on Switch. It's going to be on all other platforms, so we can't just restrict it to Nintendo. Yeah, I, Xbox One. I, 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 Chronicles. I, I don't. I don't. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. Uh, Xbox seems to get one token game from Square like every five years. Whether it was like Kingdom Hearts three finally came over there, or uh, what was it? Final Fantasy thirteen on three sixty. <laughs> I think they, need, they. I think they need to put it on PS four, but have it where you need to have Vitas to use as the controllers. Ooh, the dream. Sell people get, on uh, those Vitas. Give the authentic experience. Of yeah. <laughs> playing Crystal Chronicles, exactly. I like it. <laughs> uh, but uh, Tobias, what have you been up to? Uh, well, uh, let's see. Still wrapping up FF Seven. I watched uh, Jackie Chan movie with you, Police Story. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Uh, I, like I, I kind of like I told you. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of genres that I really enjoy. I just don't ever get around to actually watching. And I really like kung fu, like martial arts type movies. I've always, I've never not liked the one I've seen. I just never get around to actually partaking in it. So I think uh, watching that, you know, it reminded me that I did watch uh, Drunken Master a few years back and really enjoyed that as well. I think I'm going to take this opportunity to, you know, see what Canopy has to offer uh, as far as martial arts movies and these uh, Jackie Chan and then Bruce Lee movies. Yeah, um, I have to personally thank uh, Grant from the Blade Licking Thieves podcast. I've been really getting into their backlog. And so they're, all their talk about these kind of uh, J- Japanese uh, Hong Kong movies got me really interested in uh, all these kind of kung fu action movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, that and uh, my brother is into the Criterion oh. Collection stuff. So, uh, with those two factors in mind, I've just been diving into a lot of Japanese uh, live-action movies. Like, uh, recently I watched Tokyo Drifter, which is, like, a really cool 60s gangster movie uh, about uh, an assassin that wants to leave the mob, but he keeps getting dragged back in. Uh, And he wears a fabulous uh, powder blue suit throughout the entire movie, which uh, looks really good. Uh, just all the pastel 60s colors in that movie look really cool. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's basically... I think that director, Shijun Suzuki, is pretty well known for his striking, striking visual aesthetic. Yeah, and uh, fun fact, Tobias, uh, I guess because I'm on this episode, uh, <laughs> he directed Legend of the Golden Babylon, the pink jacket Lupin the Third movie. Of course, we got to bring it back to Lupin. It's pretty much a Lupin podcast. This is your one Lupin mention, this podcast. <laughs> no, that won't be the last time we'll mention Lupin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If, slightly. If, if you're a third impact anime listener and you're not a, if you're not engaged at all into Lupin at this point, uh, I don't, I don't know what's wrong with you. We should have indoctrinated you into Lupin at this point with how many times I've brought it up. You would think. So I think that's what we've all been up to as of late. So, gentlemen, why don't we get into our main discussion? 
开吧。So, gentlemen, Kaiba came out in the year of in the year of two thousand eight, specifically during the spring season of two thousand eight. You guys want to guess what's which shows were going on at the time? I don't have to guess. You guys weren't even alive in two thousand eight. You don't know. <laughs> I was a young little baba. <laughs> Y'all were just babies two thousand eight. You're watching that uh, American cartoons. Y'all know, y'all know nothing about Japanese animation. Found no anime. Yeah. <laughs> so 2008, 2008, that, that was still, we were still in Naruto territory. I think that was by, uh, I think we were in Shippuden territory by that point. Uh, Bleach, I think, was still ongoing, maybe close to wrapping up. Well, nope. Nope. N- 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 it was not wrapping up. <laughs> it was probably in the midst No, of- it's like 2010 when it starts to wrap up, right? Like a couple years later? Yeah, when they were forced to wrap up. Well, by 2008, everyone had forgotten about Bleach, except for the diehard <laughs> Bleach fans. So it might as well have wrapped up. I was still watching Bleach. Well, yeah, again. The diehard weebs, like Edwin. Oh, good point. Also, speaking of super weeby shows, I have currently on what I have here. Uh, Soul Eater was a new show going on in spring 2008, and Code Geass, Lelouch the Rebellion, was in the midst of its second season yep. at the time. And also, Vampi- and also Vampire Night. Uh, <laughs> I think I think Dragon Ball Kai was not quite starting. I think that's 2009. Uh, it was right before De- DB Kai. So it's been a year after Gurren Lagann as well. You mentioned Kogis, yeah. I think uh, a certain Magical Index uh, started that year as well. I believe so. I think there was a lot of slice of lives around then. Yeah, I think that's when um oh what's that Horadora and uh, Kaon Kaon. Kaon was about yeah. 2008, 2009. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think I there was Baka and Test as well. Yeah. 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 So that's just kind of giving everybody like a time frame of when Kaiba was coming out at the time. Uh, now for... Let's see. Do you guys want to go into the cast or should I just go into the plot? How would we like to order this? Cast... Yeah, let's go into the cast here. <clears throat> so, like Bill mentioned, this is 2008. So, you've got uh, the principals here, you know, and a couple of stuff from around that time, but they also got a couple of recent credits as well. Uh, so, as the main character, Kaiba slash Warp, we have Hoko Kawashima. Uh, she was a, she was Tomoyo, Sakagami, and Clanad, which I think was, uh, what about that time, right? The Clanad adaptation that was like, 
Something like 2010? No. Uh, Planet was a little earlier. It was like 2006. I think this is oh, around... Okay. I I think this is around... Like the movie? What's the other... The other... The other show by Key. Uh, Air? Air is that right? No, 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 no. Not Air. Angel Beats. Oh, yeah. Oh. This is around Angel Beats. Yeah, JC staff. Yeah, they did all the key uh, key shows for a while. But anyway, so like all those like dating sim stuff, like I back you know that that was all over the internet way back when these things were first out. But like the anime adaptations, I just I I do not care about any of that at all. It all blends (laughs) together. So it's like people keep talking about Clan Ad. Like when did this come out? Is this a new thing? Is this an old thing? I don't I don't know, man. I'm too old for this crap. You kids and your your date sim. Thanks. Uh, so, uh, uh, Kuwashima was also uh, Sango and Inuyasha, maybe a little more recognizable to uh, some of you. Uh, she also was Kagura and Azumangadayo, best show ever. Uh, and she was actually a few roles in the Lupin specials. So I told you we'd bring it back. Uh, a couple, a couple of Lupin specials. She had uh, various roles in, not any one particular character. <clears throat> So, as our uh, secondary character, Nero, uh, she was played by Mamiko Noto, who was most recently in Karmat and Golden Kamui, uh, Yakumo Tsukamoto uh, in School Rumble. Uh, she was Aisa Himegami in A Certain Magical Index, like I said, kind of 2008, similar time period. Uh, Benton in The Eccentric Family from 2013. And uh, another sort of classic series, uh, Angelo Moa from Sergeant Frog or Kuroko Gunso. Uh, speaking of prolific voice actresses, we have Romy Park as Popo. Uh, Park was, I think, probably the most prolific as Edward Elric in the Full Metal Alchemist series. But uh, she's had a number of roles all throughout the anime canon. Uh, she was also, I think, Zoe. Zoe? Zoe, is that what it is? And Attack on yeah. Titan. Um, also, Ragyo and Kill a Kill. Uh, both from like 20, 2012, 2013. Uh, also, uh, long standing role as Timari in Naruto. Hmm. Uh, then we've got as the character of Vanilla, uh, Hisao Egawa who was Iwao Shimabukuro and Ippo Rising. Is that one of those Hajime no Ippo? Boxers. Yeah, boxing anime. Yeah. Uh, Egawa was also Munahisi Iwai uh, as the airsoft gun owner in Persona 5. And Goldie Marg and Gao Gaigar, as well mm-hmm. as another Naruto role, uh, Killer B from Shibuya. So Vanilla's uh, voice actor has got a you know, a wide, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A, uh, a repertoire as well. Then as best character Hyohyo, we have Wasabi Mizuta, uh, currently the voice of Doraemon in that long-running uh, children's anime. Kind of similarly, uh, she played Ash's Tepig in the Pokemon Black and White series, both the movies of the time and the television series. And then lastly, as Chronico, the most sad character of the show, we have Chiba Saito. Also had a number of roles over the past decade. 
uh, Natsume Hinata in Sergeant Frog, again, uh, Dr. Shoko in Kyoso Giga, another great surreal anime you all should check out. Uh, she was also Becky in Pony Pony Dash and Homer. Right. Yeah, yeah, Pony Pony Dash is, I think that's one of those things that just kind of got swept under the radar for a lot of people. I, pretty good. It's yeah, a pretty, it's, it's a, it's a pretty good comedy. I think it's, I think it may be a little too similar to a bunch of sort of slice of life comedies at the time. Maybe that's why it's a little forgettable to some people, but I mean, it's been a while since I watched it, but I enjoyed what I did see. Very funny. And uh, yeah, lastly, uh, Saito was Homura and Madoka Magica. I don't think anyone's ever heard of that show either. Nope. Uh, I think that's just buried underneath all the other anime that came out. Yep. <laughs> all right. With the crew, we have Masaki Yuasa. You know him. He's the writer, director, the storyboard for the show. Everybody knows him. Probably the reason why the majority of people watched the show in the first place. And then after that, we have Nobutake Ito, and he's the character designer. He did the key animation on Adolescence of Utena, Sonic the Hedgehog movie OVA, Summer Wars, and he's also worked on pretty much every Yuasa project. After that, we have Ryo Kono, and that's the art director, has also worked as the art director on Carol on Tuesday. The Mob Psycho franchise, Double Make Cry Baby, and is also the assistant art director on Metropolis mm. and the background art on Perfect Blue. Okay. After that, we have the music by Kiyoshi Yoshida, who's done the music for Girl Who Leapt Through Time. Very, very good soundtrack as well. Yeah. Also done the opening and end themes were by Seira Kagami, who's actress and model. And then finally, we have Eun Young Choi, who's uh, done the storyboard, writer, episode director. You know she is. She's always with Yuasa. And she is the, uh, as of this recording, she's the new president of uh, Yuasa Studios, uh, Science Arrow. Yep. I have high hopes for her. I have high hopes uh, for Science Arrow, too. I know uh, Yuasa has a couple other projects, uh, so he's not completely done, but... I think with her as the the new uh, captain or leader of Science Center, I think yeah. things will go really well. I mean, I think it's important to remember that she's got a, a wide um, a wide skill set. Where oh, yeah. you know, he's mostly director, he's done a lot of animation, key animation, that sort of he grew up, and so is Chira, to be honest. But uh, in her regard, she's she's had a, her fingers in a lot more pots than he has. I feel like over the past, you know, five, six, seven years, people have always wanted her to be more involved in more shows, and it's finally her time to shine. Yeah, no, for sure. I would like to see her direct more stuff and have more of you know her work. But I do kind of appreciate the fact that she is the more, I guess, maybe maybe not responsible is the best word, but she feels like she has a greater responsibility. You know, I kind of mentioned in the Aizoken episode, which should be out by now, that um, she's kind of the Kanamori to uh, Yuasa's, uh, um, what's, what's the character's name, Midori. And I kind of feel like you that's mean- the case here, where she feels like more of the... Um, that sense of uh, it sort of keeps him grounded, I guess, is what I'm trying to look for uh, overall. Yeah. 
At least that's the way I feel. Again, again, I don't know these people, you know, in real life. I don't really know how that works, but that's kind of the impression I get uh, based on their relationship dynamic and uh, you know. And through interviews, she's done a number of interviews uh, uh, promoting their works. Like she uh, did interviews for Ride Your Wave and uh, and a, and a couple of their other projects. So. You know, I, never, I didn't really think of it back then, but yeah, she did do the interview for Ride Your Wave, and she's been pretty present in a lot of the interviews and video. You know, I kind of wonder if, if Yuasa was maybe prepping her or prepping her as the new face of the company, knowing that he was going to be leaving here uh, not too long. Uh, that, that's a possibility because um, even though it, it's a flawed uh, way of doing things, people like to have a face to an entity. Uh, because uh, because it it helps it helps sell uh, whatever you're doing whether it be a a movie or music or whatever I mean I will say in the Ride Your Wave interview she's very charismatic it was a very good interview to to watch to pay attention to Uh, so I think if if anything else she's going to be a really good face for the company for sure Mm -hmm. Uh, very much so So, thank you Tobias thank you Edwin Uh, thank you Bill well, thank you for uh, saving the audience from having to hear me butcher Japanese names. So. <laughs> Anytime. Why don't we get into what is Kaiba actually about? So Kaiba is a dystopian sci-fi tale about a boy named Warp who travels around uh, the universe of Kaiba in uh, hopes to regain his memory and find a red-haired girl of his past, which he has a picture of this girl in a locket that he owns. Within the world of Kaiba, people are able to store their memories slash identities onto memory chips, which allows people to change their bodies at will, if you have the wealth to pay for it, leading to less fortunate citizens to have to sell their bodies, literally their bodies, uh, to the wealthy and powerful. So if, like, let's say I had a very attractive body, but I was poor, I could uh, basically take my memory chip out and sell my body to an upper crust uh, wealthier man, for example. Memories can also be selectively deleted if a person chooses to, or in other cases, they uh, they they give their memories away for uh, for profit, as we've saw in at least uh, one of the episodes that we'll probably talk about uh, in Kaiba. Uh, I would say Kaiba is a story in two parts. Uh, Part one is at least the first six episodes where Warp is meeting different people across the universe and seeing the effects of uh, the technology, such as the memory chip, and how people use it, 
and how it affects people's lives. And part two, which is the final six episodes of Kaiba, uh, is the Resolutions to Warp's story. Kaiba uses technology to illustrate its themes and ideas from loss, death, what happens when we give in to our desires, and how uh, those actions affect people around us. It also examines identity, who we are, the use of power, and greed. Very typical themes and topics in classic sci-fi fiction that we've seen in books, movies, and television. And so with the plot uh, out of the way, why don't we start off with uh, how did we all find Kaiba in the first place? Because when it came out uh, in spring of 2008, no one was really talking about it. It wasn't really uh, licensed. And at the time, uh, Yuasa was a complete unknown at the time. Probably like most people, they looked at the at Yuasa's backlog and then saw that he had worked on this and gave it a watch. Hmm. In my case, uh, I watched it when it came out. And back in that day, we didn't really have the luxury of, of that. Um, Yuasa was very much, at that point, a co-director, not even quite the co-director he would become just uh, two years later with the Tatami Galaxy, you know, a couple of people knew him as the guy that directed Mind Game, which is also kind of a cult movie at the time as well. Uh, not very well known, but in the same vein of uh, like Katsu. A lot of people would have knew Katsu as being this crazy movie, man. And uh, Mind Game is just like Katsu, so you got to watch it. It's just this trippy, you know, surreal anime. So <laughs> that's kind of, if anything, I saw people were introduced to Kaiba, but I agree with, with Bill on that. No one really watched it. <laughs> I saw, like, maybe one thread on a forum I was on at the time that had mentioned it. Like, there's this new trippy anime you should watch. And I was kind of looking for something new myself. I've been, you know, kind of out of anime at the time. I was one of my, one of my valleys of interest um, during 2008, and I was doing other things. So Kaiba was kind of my reintroduction into it. And I, I knew at the time that it was something special. Just the way that it looks so different than everything. Uh, this is again, a, you know, late two thousands. This is very sort of moe moe stuff. Very slice of life. Cute girls doing cute things. Uh, we mentioned K-On just a second ago. It was very much that period of, uh, of anime at that time. So we think it's a, you know, we, you see kind of now and how different it looks compared to even today's stuff. That's against you know, a very fertile ground of weird, you know, anime movies and more interesting stuff, a lot more risk-taking than we saw in in the mid-2000s. So, yeah, I watched a couple episodes there, um, kind of, like, off and on, and trying to finish it and watch it, and uh, I always really come back to it, and I'm always really amazed by this show, and just to see Yuasa go from being this underground, you know, dude that only a few people really paid attention to and really knew about, uh, to see how with every show that his uh, his reputation increases with uh, the Tommy Galaxy and then Ping Pong and then Devil May Cry Baby and then now Night of Show Walk On Girl. It just seems like he's finally getting the attention that I feel like he deserves. And, uh, you know, we never, never in a million years what I would have thought that Kaiba would have got localized. It was one of those shows that you pretty much had to watch on a fan sub and there was no way in hell we were going to get that over here. Yeah, it was tough enough to get the Tatami Galaxy, and we I think we just got that shortly after Kaiba here. You know, it was it was streaming on uh, I think Funimation had it, 
uh, sub only because there's just no way in hell you can dub the Tatami Galaxy. Mm. Uh, but yeah, Kaiba was even lesser lesser known than than that show was, and I think you know Tatami Galaxy is easily one of the best of the 2010s, uh, coming out of the first year of that decade even. Um, so it's really it's been really great seeing this show come back and at least get localized. And uh, I will be preaching the phrases of this show for all of my years. Well, uh, I I think that was a, a good summation. Uh, unfortunately for you, Tobias, I'm gonna have to blow some smoke to you because uh, I found this show through you, uh, through your surrealism panel, which. Uh, yeah, I I love that panel a lot because it shows different um, art styles and not just that anime could have like a typical, uh, uh, for lack of a better de- definition, house style that everyone kind of thinks anime has to look like. Yeah. I used to say it was with surrealism that, you know, if, if I could convince one person to watch a Yuasa show by the end of that panel, I would have succeeded. But at this point, so many people are at least familiar with, you know, in the very least, Devilman Crybaby, that it seems like I've got to up the stakes a little bit. And uh, I've got to get people to watch maybe like Kaiba specifically or, or something like, um, oh, what was it, uh, Genius Party, uh, Happy mm-hmm. Machine from Genius Party, or one of his weird, weird out there uh, shorts. Yeah, and I was just really intrigued by the, the art style of Kaiba because uh, it's not like anything that's currently airing or 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 even at the time like you were saying like it was a lot of kind of moe art designs there was a lot of heavy cgi use being used at the time like studio gonzo was probably at the height of its money money at the time just putting show after show out um whereas this is completely different where it's kind of a callback to um the ozama tezuka type uh, design aesthetic with the very rounded character designs. And I, I think one thing that I like about the art style is f- for two reasons. One, it gets away from the kind of typical Blade Runner aesthetic of what a dystopian sci-fi has to be. Yes, it's not, exactly. it's not, it's not metallic. It's not, it's more of really busy. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not, it's not a cityscape. It's, it's more mm-hmm. of an organic, organic view of a dystopian future. Yeah, it's incredibly unique. You know, whenever you think of things like, you know, those these transhumanist themes, like this show is very much a ghost in the shell type show. You've got this these um, synthetic bodies. You've got these memories which you can upload and download from one body to another. You've got a terrorist organization and this police force tracking them down. Like this is all stuff you would see in a hyper realistic, like you know, Shiro style, um, like sci-fi work. But there is nothing further um, from that than what Kaiba is. It is. It is. It looks like a uh, like a cross between like a, a Disney a Disney cartoon and like Tesca. It's uh, like a throw a little uh, Tex Avery in there for for good measure. <laughs> like it looks. In some cases, it looks ugly as hell, <laughs> uh, and I think that makes it work in a way that so much better than had it been like a Ghost in the Shell style hyper realistic. Uh, a series. Well, it also it disarms the viewer mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. because yep. people know that kind of dystopian uh, setting so well that this this type of aesthetic kind of lulls you in and doesn't. If you're not into that kind of dystopian story, yep. it's just like oh, 
this is something different. And I think that uh, and I think that pushes kind of some of the themes more. We have uh, in episode two, one of the characters, you know, gets his head blown off, uh, shoots his head off. And I think in a show like Ghost in the Shell, we've seen a little too much hyper-realistic violence to where we're a little immune to that effect. But when we see it in his brains, like, fly up in the air, out the porthole, as little Salmon Row, it, it looks horrifying, and it kind of shocks you in a way that that realistic violence wouldn't. Yeah, the art style for this show is in contrast to the content that it presents the mm-hmm. viewer. Yep. Mm. Yeah, and I think it also kind of helps the viewer digest uh, the very hard at times uh, subject matter that's yep. that is talked to, that is uh, illustrated within Kaiba. Uh, just just for curiosity's sake, have, have you any of you uh, experienced any of Tezuka's works, whether that be his anime productions or his manga? I mean, like Astro Boy. Yeah, like I, that's all I know. Just like yeah, like I'm just I'm just wondering because his because uh, just to that I would say uh, his aesthetic is a big inspiration for the look of the show. And if you two were maybe inspired by seeing the show, to go back and look at some Tezuka work. That's one thing I've I've always kind of skipped over Tezuka. Like I'm ashamed to say, like you see you know, Astro Boy. And he always just looked like a, a cartoon character, like a very, just, he's there, he's very round, he just seems like, mm-hmm. alright, he's a metaphor for nuclear proliferation and the dangers thereof. And I also think that a lot of Japanese artists then were still influenced by American artists. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. still hadn't, like, fully developed their own unique art yeah. style. Well, and I, I think with the Tesca, like, I, I, I've kind of avoided him because I get the image of Astro Boy as being sort of a a show for kids, like a, a, um, a metaphor for nuclear proliferation for kids. And I, mm-hmm. I mostly forgotten, like not really paid much attention to it, but I did see, uh, the Rintaro metropolis, uh, from what the mid two thousands, I want to say, um, I really enjoyed that. And that was certainly a little more in the vein of this harder sci-fi subject matter, uh, that I was expecting. And uh, I did randomly pick up a volume of Phoenix at the local library, and Ooh. I was not expecting that to go where it was. <laughs> I was thinking it was going to be a little more, again, a little more family-friendly, but nope, it gets hard really fast, and it's talking about uh, human evolution changing, and there's characters just getting capped left and right, uh, <laughs> very cartoony-looking happy characters that are just getting like shot up. It's uh, It was not what I was expecting, and I think that's kind of... Between that and seeing this, obviously kind of inspired by the very similar, you know, Tezuka styling, has definitely made me want to go back and dig more into that catalog. I feel like I kind of skipped over, because like Edwin said, with Tezuka being like the grandfather of manga, you know, he looked toward Walt Disney and Walt Disney and uh, Western styling to sort of make this new identity for what we now know as, you know, manga anime style, the big eyes, small mouth style that, you know, we're, we're familiar with. Um, but I think he's done, it's very easy to dismiss that, dismiss that as being, you know, been trying to emulate, trying to copy Walt Disney. But he's done something, I think, so much more than what the image, um, what it looks like on the surface. Right. Uh, I think Hype is a good, like, introduction to a sort of that. Like, it looks like one thing. But the theme behind it is something drastically different. Mm-hmm. Now, I think maybe the pacing to Kaiba and the overall narrative kind of shoots off in a way that maybe doesn't quite serve that purpose as a Tezuka, um, uh, not parody, but like a send-off, uh, mm-hmm. I suppose. Well, 
I I have some theories about that when we can, when we get into that, but I would say uh, because this this aired on a premium channel, uh, Wow Wow, which also aired Standalone Complex, so a lot of premium uh, anime that are dealing with more mature themes and uh, subject matter usually end up on Wow Wow, and I and based off the uh, what I've seen in the production crew, this seemed to be a very personal. Uh, project for Yuasa because he was involved in every aspect of uh, Kaiba because if we haven't if you haven't figured it out yet at this point this is an original work this isn't based off a manga it's not based off a light novel uh, it's not based off a game it's all um, it is created by uh, Misaki Yuasa he's 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 credited as the original creator uh, I think this is uh, the studio he was with at the time was Madhouse and this is uh, you know produced by Madhouse. And I think this is kind of the point where Madhouse is putting out a lot of more interesting stuff at this point, I believe. Yeah, because Satoshi Khan uh, was mm-hmm. was still alive, and did Paprika come out in like two thousand seven? But- yeah, I think Millennium Actress like yeah twenty two thousand six two thousand seven something like that. Yeah, um, he didn't. He wouldn't pass in two thousand nine. So this is still be yeah, Khan would still be alive here. Yeah. Yeah, and they were they. I would say at the time, Madhouse was more experimental in what they were willing to do. Back, back to uh, Kaiba. Like, like I said, kind of in my summary, the show's in. It's basically two halves. Where the first half is uh, Warp slash Kaiba uh, exploring the world, and the show kind of illustrating the con- the technology concepts of like the memory chip. And I think yeah. that's the strongest part of the show because they're basically little vignettes uh, each every single episode of just the effects of of this dystopian world and the effects of the chip and uh, what it does to people. I love the episodic nature of the first half because not only are you introduced to the world and what the characters have to go through in this world just to survive, um, you can take it one episode at a time and they're relatively self-contained yeah. so it's easier to grasp them what they're presenting to you 
And the thing I like is about the early episodes is each episode deals with a particular theme. So, like, in the second episode when uh, Kaiba is on the the ship, it's dealing with what, how the ship can affect a relation, uh, like a romantic relationship, because you see the main uh, the main guy that he meets, Butter, is oh yeah, we're gonna go into spoilers by the way. I feel like I should say that uh, beforehand. He he uses the chip to basically manipulate all these women to kind of be in love with him and uh, kind of manipulates them to kind of uh, smuggle all these illegal memory chips across the border and how it affects uh, relationships with his main girlfriend that we meet in episode two. Or in a, how in episode three, which I think is Tobias's favorite, which is Chronica's Boots, it's dealing with uh, how it affects, how the memory chips affect family and how memories are interconnected. So, like, for example, the one, uh, the older, her, her basically her adopted uh, mother, her aunt, uh, desperately wants her memories of how, of how to play music again. And um, she does this by convincing Krenico to uh, sell her body. And, um, but after doing so, and getting her memories back, she, she realizes that the memories of her playing music are so tied to her family that it just begins to cause her sadness and pain and just the interconnectedness of memories. We think about these sort of these themes of sci-fi, you can just change whatever body, your avatar, however you want. But here we have the very real issue of money and the, the ability to afford that kind of stuff. So here we see people in the low end uh, they have to sell their their physical bodies um, to be able just to to eat and support their families here, and so you got this this character that's in this very tough situation where she's taking care of her her sister's daughter, but now she's got two kids in the picture and um, her husband's dead and like she's disabled herself, so she mm-hmm. can barely afford to to feed them all. So at this point, you know, Chronic is old enough where she wants to make the decision to sell her body because obviously she can just get her memory chip later. Well, that doesn't quite work out either. They they make the you know the um, uh, decision just to basically kill her uh, to release her memories and just destroy the chip and uh, not have to worry about that that guilty conscience. But of course, that doesn't work because <laughs> you have your conscience as a human being. You know, you don't need that memory chip to be there always uh, as a reminder. You have those memories. You also failed uh, to fail to mention that Chronico uh, specifically, because she's young, her body is worth more because it's hard to get young bodies. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. And a constant theme throughout all these individual episodes is just kind of the individualistic desires and people pushing for their individual wants and just kind of disregarding connections to family uh, and loved ones, kind of as we've seen in, in Chronico, or the, f- I think it's the third or the fourth episode about the grandma yeah. and her two, gra- I think it's her two grandsons or her sons that are basically like just disregard her and just want her, um, her treasure uh, that they think that the grandfather's treasure, you mean? Yeah, sorry, the grandfather's treasure, and also just the just the disregard for kind of rules and order 
um, in general. Like in that Chronicle Boots episode, people who bought Chronicle's body are chasing uh, Warp, who is in Chronicle's body by different circumstances. And Vanilla, who is a policeman in this universe, just shoots them dead to rights. Doesn't have to have one single reason. He just kills them because he finds Chronicle attractive. I think that I agree that the the first half is certainly uh, more strong. I would think than the second half, just because it gives you this time to let these concepts breathe. Mm-hmm. And these more these more vignette episodes. You know, each one you, you still they all focus on the ideas of the memory traps, but the things they focus on specifically. Uh, you know, in episode two we see these these characters hold power over others. We have butters and tricking all these people into smuggling these ships. Um, yep. And then we even have the, the character Parm, who is actually the one that smuggles Kaiba's original body uh, onto the ship. Uh, her whole shtick is that she double loads her memory, she copies her memories rather than moves them into Kaiba and uses his body um, to have sex with, to, to basically masturbate with. And which is the fact that um, this clone uh, ends up killing her mid coitus. And then Vanilla shows up as the cop, and there's blood everywhere. There's green blood all over the room. And he realizes that, oh, you know, the clone would obviously want to kill the original because it knows that it's going to be killed, you know, as the secondary for your life form at the end of it. Uh, so we see the, this this moment of uh, you know, almost sort of like a crime drama where it just kind of stops. They scramble for the gun, uh, 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 you know, the Parm clone in Kaiba's body tries to like crush, uh, like crush the, her, the original memory chip to get rid of it, and uh, before Vanilla shoots him and freezes him in a place. So that's again something that would be a little more mature, would be in something like in a more adult-oriented show, uh, but is very it, it sticks out here and in this in the aesthetics that we have in this show. Uh, I feel like mission later in the, the episode four we have uh, the, the grandkids and the idea of these memories and how the grandmother is so hesitant to give them up she's hesitant to accept the fact that her husband is dead and thus she kind of shelters her grandkids and they don't really appreciate these memories and their legacy from either their parents or their parents parents and I think that you know, we look at the grandmother as a very sad character. She also kind of did them a disservice by not being there and not accepting the reality of the truth. Because this show and this society in the show is all about protecting people from their own mortality. It's about protecting people from the harsh truth. And that's kind of what the disparity is, is that you know the idea of death is just is not existent here. You know, if you die, you can just put your memory in a chip and believe you're going to live forever. And to some degree you do, but no one can really afford the body to put you in. You know, is the constant stream of bodies that are still required. The bodies themselves do die off. And hmm. there's just not the there's just not the resources available for that. In the first episode, they have a whole bag full of chips and they're just plugging all these chips into this machine to see who it is, you know, as they try to find, you know, I think somebody's brother. And it's like, no, that's just grandpa. No, that's just grandma. That's cousin Lou. Oh, he's worthless. We shouldn't put him in the body because he he'll just cause uh, mess ups with for us again. Yeah. Or you you see the family that's basically in a grouped robot body 
that are just kind of stuck together. Exactly. Yeah. They they rotate um, depending on who's talking, and the and the daughter of the family is like, "Can we please get a body? I want to go explore." Yeah. And you know, we don't really know how long they've been there. They could have been there for a hundred years. Mm. <laughs> it's the idea of you know you have this promise of a better life. Um, just like I feel like it's kind of an ever-present theme in science fiction anyway. You always have these ideas of space travel or, or warp or, you know, any sort of science fiction utopia. But it never solves the problem, the very human problem that we have. And I think Kaiba shows that, well, you know, just like in reality, you know. In real life here, we have a a series, we have a network which allows us instantaneous information. You can learn more in front of your computer than you could, you know, 20 years ago from access to, you know, uh, an actual library, you know, full college. And has the internet really solved our issues as humanity? No. In fact, a lot of ways it's made it worse. <laughs> I think we have yeah. almost greater class disparity than we did, than we did, you know, 20, 30 years back. So I think kind of, kind of touches upon that here. That's one thing people don't talk about, the um, consequences of technology. Mm-hmm. We always talk about like the benefits that can come from it, but mm-hmm. we never look at the evil side of technology. We just try not to acknowledge it. No, I, I, I would um, say it's been the, the dark side of technology has been talked about. Like if people are big fans of Black Mirror, it's a constant theme that's reiterized uh, over and over again. Of just the dangers of technology. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, but and, we never really bring it up in like everyday conversation. No, yeah, I would, I would agree. It's crazy when we think about like, you know the internet. Everyone you know, jokes about social media and you know goofing off with your friends. And you know, I think the internet has done a lot of good for people overall. Again, it has benefits, but it's been co-opted by people in power uh, who would like to sell you, you know, to sell you something. You know, look at look at Facebook. We all joined Facebook because it was a you know a thing to do. Everyone was on it. You know, it's a good way, to, easy way to communicate and share pictures and be social with people in a way that you just really wasn't that. I mean, sure, you had the internet, you had websites and stuff, but it was a lot more difficult for people to get to their own site, upload pictures, you know, all that kind of stuff than it would be to do it on a social media site. And it just it didn't have the same cohesiveness as a, a centralized place like Facebook or now even Twitter do, but. All of that information, all that, you know, that's free. It's a free site to use, but that comes at a price. And it's, it's the, the symbols of power that we now see, you know, um, you know, Facebook and then Zuckerberg and all that. They have definitely taken control of the media in a way that is completely beyond, you know, uh, beyond our kin as of, you know, 10 years ago. I would have never thought it would be, it would be like, politically influencing in the, in the way that it has been. And we've noticed over the past four years, uh, it's just wild to think that this site, this little goofy site I joined to share dumb pictures and hang out with my college friends would impact the world in such a way that it has. Well, technology always disrupts to some degree yeah. and the keepers of power always eventually grasp it and recognize it. Like before a Mark Zuckerberg, there was like a William Randolph Hearst that controlled yeah. the new medium of uh, newspapers and of yeah, and fair. of and of radio and of TV. And I think and I think there's always a, sort of a struggle when it comes to t- with new technology. And you, the, gotta, you, know, you got the 
the this, this power struggle, this political struggle, and it kind of touches upon that too with uh, the King War. And uh, we see that more in the second half. But even just the small ways that these benefits you know, impact these characters, uh, like we mentioned with the, with the grandmother and the grandkids, you know, they they, mm. they sort of cause this crutch for them to, um, in a lot of ways, discard the humanity and kind of. Uh, reject a lot of their responsibilities. It's also just an innate human trait of when a problem is solved, we always want something more. We're never fully satiated. And that's the kind of the gluttony and greed that's within all humans to some degree. Uh, Whether that be be, uh, buying stuff on Amazon or, oh, I just got this latest... uh, uh, figure, but oh no, there's a sale. I need to go get this thing too. So, uh, kind of as Sully has talked about in the thing, is just we are materialistic people, or we always want different. We always want different things. We're never fully satisfied, and I think that's a theme within Kaiba of just like oh, we solved uh, uh, the the concept of 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 life and death, but that doesn't really solve the problem of of not just. Uh, the people were in power, but it doesn't make anyone really happy. Uh, yeah, exactly. And the other thing uh, I just started thinking about it is it also kind of makes you think about they kind of this is in the later the second half is just like well what is a person what is a what is your person's identity because um, as you said kind of earlier in that second episode there was a clone. Well, isn't that clone a person? And don't they have a, an identity and want to survive? And that's a that's a very common sci-fi ideal that people have been examining for hundreds of years of just like, well, what is a person? What makes a thing a living soul? And that's a that's kind of a subtle theme that goes after Archiba because in the second half there's a lot of people switching bodies and having different copies of different types of memories. So, well, who is the real person, and which identity is the is the right one or the real one? Uh, which uh, can, if you get through the second half, can get very complicated. And I probably need a chart uh, watch, watching the second half of Kaiba. Uh, but it's a it's a great examination and complication of identity. Yeah, I think the uh, first half does that a lot better, just because. Um, you know, there's not a whole lot of body switching. We have the main character. He goes from uh, the warp body to the hippopotamus body to Chronica's body. And I think that's the end of that until we... Well, the, to... the, the, the first half is it's easy to follow. Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying is that, you know, it's like it's per episode. So it's very easy to see who's what. But then in the second half, they, they kind of resolves a lot of the background plot uh, in a way that... Uh, isn't the most direct way to do so. So it, it can be very difficult to tell who's who. And they even sort of have a couple of the gotcha moments, the, um, you know, the, the, um, what the, the plot hooks, I guess, um, mm-hmm. even like uh, until after you see some stuff. So there's, you know, we find out that, uh, that Nero has been uh, there with Popo the whole time and he and won a quarter and he's so done. But then they show up and there's the final fight. But wait, Nero is also Hyojo. But why is Nero here if she's also in Kyoho? But then it tells you, no, no, well, Popo double-loaded her body, her memories, and, you know, the original Nero is, is Kyoho all along, 
but the new one has been tricked. And it, it tells you that sort of after, and it makes it kind of more confusing. Yeah. Which, I don't know how I really like that, uh, to be honest. I mean, nonetheless, I'm still glad that Kitchy, I think that's the character's name. Who? Who was doing, like, the, the memory transplants. I'm still glad that he did that in the first yeah, place. Yeah, yeah. I really liked his character by the end. He kind of went giant robot mecha. <laughs> got to keep some kind of anime tropes in the show. <laughs> he got a he got that sort of robot arms, and he even went kind of like Johnny at the end. So you've seen the Tommy Galaxy or even um, uh, Nighty Shore, the the cowboy character Johnny. He sort of morphs into him uh, for some reason here. <laughs> even though it's confusing for me, I like the second half because it, it really makes you think of well, like what is a person, what is an identity, and the one, the one thing I, they don't really get into is the. Re- you could look at this through a religious aspect, a religious lens, if you really yeah. wanted to, uh, which the show doesn't really examine. It's the show looks at more all the memory chips through a class identity and how it affects people in like working uh, the working class to the to the upper class and how the how it creates that disparity. But it never looks at it through a religious lens, which you could really uh, examine the. Sh- uh, Kaiba through that because people have been uh, trying to figure out for a millennial like what is a soul, which is basically uh, what the what uh, people have been, which is kind of uh, what the show implies with the memory chips of just well, well, is a person just their memories? Yeah, no, for sure. I don't. There wasn't a very over overly religious part, but I felt like the the, the terrorist group. Uh, Isodam, one accord, whatever uh, the official translation is. Um, they were very cult-like, uh, and I feel like with the main character being one of the warp clones, and even Popo sort of usurping that role and uh, sort of taking over. Uh, you know, he's not a good leader by any measure. He's very much wants to to rule. Uh, kind of, I felt like maybe was close enough to sort of a religious cult aspect, but I think that kind of worked for me. I would say it's more of a militant nationalist type uh, uh, argument where just this guy thinks that his desires is what people need and people want. And through my desires and through my wants, I will create a better world. What was, uh, what, what, what was up with the, uh, that drink they were drinking? The poison? Yeah, because like, we see the part in Warp's past where his mom tried to feed him the poison. But he rejected it. But then we see the poison, you know, later when he first shows up as Kaiba, and he's mm-hmm. about to dr- he's about to drink the same. It's got the same cup and the same liquid. It even melts the ground in the same way. Like he he and uh, Nero, they like polish them all off. So I don't know if it's always poison. If it's just was supposed to be an analog for alcohol in general, like lime, some sort of mm-hmm. um, you know potent drink. But it kind of made, the, the way they have it, the way it being you know, in the cup, and the way that it sort of melts the floor, like alien style, the, the acidity of the drink, and the fact that it's later attributed to poison, kind of made me wonder what was going on in that scene as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this, um, if people want, I would say, really clear answers, the finale does not give you that. <laughs> it's kind of, it's, it's, it's open-ended to a certain degree. Um, because at the end, um, there's a big confrontation that kind of basically is equivalent to a, a, a universe reset. Uh, c- kind of like a, 
I was getting kind of a, the, the, either the end of 3.3 Evangelion or end of Evangelion vibes to a certain degree. Uh, at the end of Kaiba, I don't, t- uh, Tobias, would you, would you say I'm crazy in that notion? Well, just, just like you gotta bring up Lupin every episode, I gotta bring up End of Another episode, just, just how we roll here at the, you know, the third Impact anime podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, uh, it, it does bring something very similar to End of Ava, where it's, it's an apocalypse that is very heavily stylized and it draws you into the visuals. Uh, much in the same way that uh, the Devil Man did, both in Crybaby and in the original, it's kind of over the top apocalypse that you're supposed to, um, you know, enjoy what you're seeing. You've got you know Kaiba versus Warp. They're like he's shooting uh, memory energy, I guess, into his brain. It's getting all bloated, and his head explodes. It's a cosmic fight that uh it's the way i would describe it is just like two giant cosmic beings fighting each other and you've got the you've got kaiba the plant so there's kaiba the person our main character but he's named after this plant organism that just eats memories and just eats everything which they kind of hint at they they illustrate in the first and one of the first episodes of if they don't have a chip to store extra memories they will just dump them the memories as bubbles into space where this plant Kaiba will eat them. I feel like it's it's very much, you know, EOE style where it's something you just kinda of enjoy the spectacle of. But I mean the ending itself is just they eat the memory chips, they destroy the big evil, you know, the Kaiba plant. And I think they just oh jeez, I don't even remember what actually happens in the end. <laughs> they basically reset the world where um the the warp slash kaiba that we've been following and the uh yo uh nero how living and a few other people where it's basically it's them kind of resetting the world and her just kind of looking down at warp after this big fight and it kind of ends that way where it's just kind of open ended of just like well the world is reset we don't know how things are going to change now uh so it's up to you, the audience, to determine how it's going to go. I, I will say that I think that, uh, you know, sort of the ending, the thing I enjoyed the most was, again, just like, uh, you know, the finale of Evan Gilliam. It's very introspective. We've got this, the main character that's coming to terms with um, his own issues, his own um, betrayals, as it were. You know, mm-hmm. he's, he's pretty much the successor to the throne, but he's been betrayed by his mother, betrayed by his father, betrayed by what he thought was his best friend, both Popo and Nero. Uh, he's constantly been pushed around by people. And at the end, you know, it's just, he, he's in love with his character, Nero. He really much does love her. And he, he came to this love before he knew who he was. And it was a very innocent, a very easily come by love, I feel like. And having to get over a lot of what he's learned about himself uh, discovering these memories and the things around him and the way people treat each other. Uh, I think that's kind of, uh, I think that's one of the major themes at the end is sort of overcoming this, um, these issues and these problems and these um, situations you've been through to, to recover your humanity. Yeah, and it's a, it's, it's a bit of a kind of um, split within his own memory of, well, which pathway do I want to go down? Yeah. And him choosing which which way is the way to go.
and I and I loved that kind of open ending because uh, as as I've, as we've seen with other kind of um, sci-fi or mystery shows, that if you leave every if you tie everything up in a bow, it doesn't really satiate the audience because the audience will have pre-made ideas of how they view it. It should it should go yeah. by leaving it open ended. You allow the audience to decide how they want it to end, and that. That's why, even if the ending and the kind of the second half of Kaiba is confusing, I I like the the ending of the reset of just like, well, you determine how you think the world is going to be. Are they just going to go back to the way things were? I'm sorry, I feel like that's a cop out. I think it's something to talk about for sure. I I, I do agree with Edmund that like the first half is the stronger half for sure. I don't mind the second, but I feel like it could have been maybe a better balance. Maybe I feel like they, there wasn't enough planning in it. I feel like they they had a strong half, but then they knew that they were on a twelve episode time frame, so they had to resolve it somehow. Yeah, I I I, I don't disagree with you two on that. Is I think it, I wish that they had gotten more money to space out uh, their show a bit more because I think second half is very condensed where they're just giving you one big reveal after the other for um, for a little while and it gets kind of like okay I, what's going on I can't wrap my head around it um, so I think that was probably just budget reasons of like oh we could only get enough money to do these 12 episodes um, and we gotta go yeah I felt the exact same way with Darling of the Franks where like they have all this world building, but then they they realize they have like five episodes left to wrap it up, and then they just bombard you with plot after plot after plot without letting the viewer like fully digest it like the first few episodes. This is a tangent town, but did Darling and the Franks get like two seasons or like twenty six episodes? Yeah, it had twenty six episodes, but it's the same idea where they spend too much time on world building and not enough time on finishing it up mm. i think i would have loved to seen like a 20 a 20 or 24 episode kaiba i would too but the fact is they went with 12 i feel like if the show had maybe another year of like of preparing the, the script and whatnot mm. to make it a bit more cohesive for the viewers i wonder if uh i wonder if, if, if it had been made now in, in 2020 I wonder if Yuasa's name and Sciencer's name would have been able to carry it a little better. But this being the original work, you know, sure, this is Madhouse, and they were doing a lot of crazy stuff. Uh, like Bill said, since it doesn't have a lot of merchandising you know, potential, and this isn't tied to a larger property that's already making money, um, I kind of wonder if that would have, you know, they pretty much could only get what they could get. Uh, I think, I'm not even sure that I would really... Uh, want a second season exactly i don't i don't know if they could well well i guess what i'm saying is i don't know if they could have had enough material to make it 24 episodes to make it still work i do still would have appreciated more of the planet of the week sort of deals where we have these little vignettes that are over and over again but there still is like five episodes finale and i feel like the they they do what they do because they try to wrap themselves up in these confusing plot lines, and while 
part of me does appreciate that the fact that they're they're confusing you with who warp is you know and all these warp clones and then what popo has to do with it and popo's backstory with you know being this uh what was he like a diabetic kid or like an ugly kid mm-hmm. or something like he had he had a you know some physical something wrong with him and he you know he got a new body even though he's part of this you know this this uh this group that you know is that's verboten you're not allowed to do that and he had like an Oberstein, like Legend of Galactic Heroes henchwoman that would basically like, I feel like you can lead, lead the, lead our way to a better life. And just the machinations of that group and the elders that he was initially working for. And exactly. And I, and like, I appreciate like the council of, of, of warp clones to sort of roll over Yisodan to, to actually maintain the status quo to some degree to sort of get what they want. You know, I, I kind of appreciate seeing this very idealistic religious, you know, cult group basically be very selfish uh, to some degree. You know, I, I like seeing Nero as this, um, you know, this character that could see the good in people that saw the good in, in Kaiba, even though he was a warp clone. You know, I liked the fact that that Nero was both Hyo-Hyo and and Nero. I liked the you know the character that uh, that they did that that, that was, became the robot at the end. He said his name was what Chichi was it? Uh, Kichi. Yeah, Kichi. <clears throat> so like I I there's I don't I don't dislike any one aspect of the the five episode finale, but I feel like it does try to wrap itself around these circles and make itself a little more confusing. I feel like it could have been a little more straight laced. You know, we've got this this huge plot. We've got Popo takes over. We've got him sort of unveil himself as this new dictator, but he's also, he kind of falls apart when the Kaiba plant shows up. You've got a lot of these plot twists that may have worked in a larger show, but I feel like they could have cut an episode or two out. If they had more episode, they could have spaced it out and give it give those reveals more time to breathe. Yeah, I, I just don't think he, I don't know if I would want a twenty-four episode version of Kaiba. I'm not saying twenty-four episodes. I would say maybe like, hey, how about eighteen? How about twenty? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But but kind of bringing back to what you're saying about anime production, you know, it's all in intervals of twelve or thirteen based on the seasons. So it's very tough to have a TV show, an anime show that is like eighteen, you know, a season and a half basically. It's something that really wouldn't be done back then necessarily now i think that you know yuasa's name could have carried itself now in 2020 with the number of works he's put out with what science art was done or maybe he could swing something like that you know i think i obviously i don't want kaiba to be remade i don't want a you know nah. hd remaster of the show <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination but it does make me kind of wonder what they would do now knowing what they knew and the ability what they they had now you know, I think the best, if someone said, like, you could do something with Kaiba, is I would love this in a novel form, like, as a classic science fiction novel, or as, like, a, or as like a trilogy, because that way you could flesh out the world, continue to do vignettes, and you could uh, kind of give more space for those big reveals. And you, you, could, you, could, you could also do it in manga form, uh, which I think could easily work. I think doing it as a novel would be interesting because you wouldn't have the benefit of the visuals, the very Yuasa-esque visuals here. And I wonder, you know, as a narrative itself, as just words on paper, 
you know, what your mind's eye would draw to you. I don't think it would draw to this very goofy, you know, ostrich with a fishbowl on his head. I don't think it would draw Vanilla as a big bear-like dude, <laughs> necessarily. Uh, you know, the, the hippo as being, you know, an actual big white hippo kind of thing. Well, well, Van- Vanilla, it just, I bet, I would imagine in the text, he's the symbol of, like, greedy, gluttony authority because he's got a big belly. They would describe his belly. They would describe his his kind of gruff kind of uh, voice. They would... So I would say, like, the characterization would still be there, depending yeah. on if the, writers, if the writer did it right. I just kind of wonder if, without the benefit of the visual style, if your, your mind's eye would fill in something that does look more like Ghost in the Shell. Mm, that's true. Uh, I think that, you know, per, per what happens, you know, I think that it's very easy to do something a little more uh, in that style, a little more realistic without having the benefit. You know, I think if you were to do a stage play of Kaiba, you know, to someone who had never seen or heard of it at all, I kind of wonder if that's what they would imagine this as being. Hmm. Stage play of Kaiba, I'd love, to, I'd love to see that attempt, so that'd be interesting. Hmm. Um, but I, even with all the kind of the truncation of the storyline in the second half and, uh, the, the kind of the, well, you decide ending, because I think as Edwin says, there's, there's good and bad with it of just like, well, it's kind of, people can view that as lazy to a certain degree of just like, oh, you're letting you, you're just being lazy and the audience deciding. Whereas I, whereas I feel that if you wrap up all the questions, depending on how you answer them, the audience may not like that. Um, I, I think I'm glad that the, a show like this exists because we don't, we rarely, if ever, get original works within uh, Japanese animation. Most things are tied to a light novel that's very popular, a manga, a video game franchise. Uh, I could probably count on my hand how many original works come out and they come out like every five to ten years, something like that. And I think that is something I want to bring up as well. When we see like the 2000s era Yuasa, it's it's mostly um, original stuff. You know, you've got, he started his work as key animator on Crayon Shin-chan and yes, Shibi Marko-chan, I didn't forget this time. Uh, but Yuasa sort of, his work is things like Mind Games and then that one short Ingenious Party, and then Kaiba. You know, a very happy machine and Kaiba look very similar in their design and their aesthetic and you know, even kind of their theme to some degree. But then we have in, in the 2010s with Tatami Galaxy, Ping Pong, and um, you know, Night is Short, we have these adaptations. And I feel like those works are probably better received by most people because they're not just Yuasa going crazy, and because... They're more streamlined works. Well, they're also... Well, I don't know if I would say even streamlined, but I think the fact that mainly that they are about real people on this planet Earth, <laughs> these real stories that don't, are not too fantastical, uh, Tatami Galaxy is very kind of weird and out there, and even itself has a bit of a sci-fi element with the Groundhog Day scenario, but it's all about this this kind of... A narcissist kind of guy and even if you don't like the main character there he's kind of a jerk to be fair yeah i think we all can kind of relate to that 
sort of mentality and that attitude. Uh, in ping pong, you've got this very, what I mean, ping pong at its core is just a typical sports show, but the way that it's drawn, the way that it's animated really makes it pop. So you have this mix of these narrative structures that are not from Yuasa, that are from other people that maybe resonate better uh, with their viewers, but mm-hmm. combine that with Yuasa's bombastic style, the way he draws human bodies, for instance, and the way the body flows and, and works and moves, uh, I think ties really well uh, and makes them something better. So sure, ping pong has, you know, it was like a novel beforehand and a manga series. You know, ping pong had been a property in itself. Don't, don't forget I, the live action movie. Well, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's been a number of ping pong adaptations, but yeah. the anime specifically gives it something different that we wouldn't have gotten from any of the other adaptations. Uh, same thing with, uh, with you know, Tatami Galaxy and The Night is Short. Those are novels, and they already are stories, but the way the anime has these iconic characters, these visual elements, the way that it has this breakneck speed, uh, you've got sort of these... Um, uh, these characters, these over you, these these uh, character tropes that are used. Whether you've got uh, God, what's his name, uh, Ozu, uh, from both, and the little the, the god of these bookstores. I think in Night is Short, uh, where you've got the raven-haired maiden, you've got Johnny, you've got these mm-hmm. uh, visual elements that make it more than the original. You know, it makes it more than the original Morimi novels, but it grounds Yuasa by having the story that he did not make. And I think if you look at both Mind Game and Kaiba, I think that honestly becomes more apparent when I think about it because I love both works. I love Kaiba. I love Mind Game. But narratively, plot-wise, that's not their strong suit. <laughs> Mind Game goes through a couple of different acts. You know, you've got the guy getting shot. He comes back to life. There's the car chase. He gets eaten by the whale. He has a fun time in the whale with the old man and his his, uh, his girlfriend and her girlfriend's sister. Don't spoil the leaving. whole movie. <laughs> well, it just keeps going. And I love my game, but that's only like half the movie. And it just doesn't stop. And honestly, I, I like it. But by the end of it, I'm tired of watching the movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it keeps going man and it's not it's, it, I don't know if I would say it's very well paced I, I would say to your I like your compare I like your uh, your argument here uh, but I would say also, when it comes to his adaptation work whether it be Tom Galaxy or Ping Pong it's an easier entry point for the for a viewer when it's grounded in some semblance of reality, like yes, into Tom Galaxy and in Ping Pong, uh, and in Night is Short, there's some elements that are fantastical for sure, but there's always there's some semblance of grounded reality, and that grounded re- reality is more welcoming to people than just the straight up weirdness that is in Mind Game and Kaiba, um, and just the kind of the more abstract. Uh, and abstract uh, approach to those two works because um, uh, it's all about how can we relate to it and um, when it comes to uh, A Night is Short or to Ping Pong it's easier for the viewer to kind of wrap their heads around than, than, the, than the craziness that happens in Mind Game or Kaiba part of me wonders if like Maybe he relied on some of this his visual styles a little too much with his original stuff because how bombastic it looks. And like, I'm more than happy to watch a movie just for the visual style and just for the, you know, just for the 
what, what I'm seeing necessarily, you know, compared to a narrative, a story, uh, you know, I, I recognize that I'm not reading a book, so I, I personally find we're just watching eye candy for an hour and a half. <laughs> but it's, it's certainly not the high point, I think, of, of either of these shows, the pacing. And that kind of brings mm-hmm. me to, like, you know, I, I love these shows for what they are. I love seeing his original, the stuff that comes out of his mind. But I do kind of see why it was only until the new the new age of science sorrow, these adaptations, until he actually got prominence here uh, in the U.S. and got a little more notoriety. Well, I think also just kind of he. I think he shifted from uh, just the Japanese market to I'm going to try and get the U.S. market uh, and do more kind of um, Western friendly works. I would say uh, even with Ping Pong's uh, art style, which can be a turnoff to some people, uh, that's a very that's a very more that's a much friendlier work. And I think that the the, sh- the sheer uh, well, What's the the sheer uh, visceralness? Of, probably like for a better description of Devil Man, uh, caught people off guard because it uh, because it, no, they hadn't seen Mind Game or not a lot of people had seen Kaiba and they thought, wow, this guy is really interesting. I'm gonna go. I want to see more of his works. I think I think when we see Science Saru in and of itself, it's it's mostly been uh, adaptations. I think Lou Over the Wall is original, right? And uh, other than that, uh, Kickheart maybe if you count Kickheart as as being theirs. Uh, I mean, it's production IG you did it, and it's a lot of the same, you know, science art crew. But everything else, even Space Dandy and the Adventure Time episode, all you know, based on other people's works. So now, now that Uos is out, now that he's kind of doing his own thing and probably just taking a break, to be honest. Um, I kind of wonder what he'll do and what they'll do from there. I wonder if he'll go back to just, you know, he's always been a fan of animation of itself. Uh, you look at all of his works and they, that sort of bleeds through. And uh, if you look at his Twitter, he's been posting a lot of little goofy, almost Kaiba-esque, um, <laughs> little looping animations and little goofy cartoony things. So I kind of wonder if it's him just, you know, animating for the first time in a long time. Well, maybe it'll be, like, after maybe a five- or ten-year break, uh, he'll come back and Science Saru will be robust enough where they can do kind of the more grounded works that probably bring in the money, and they'll allow him to yeah. do kind of those more weird abstract projects that probably don't sell he that will, well. Uh, he will actually do the Yuasa Cinematic Universe. And, no, uh, no. And Hyogyo will show up and be like, I would like to join a team.
we do have one Twitter question from Mr. Clean is a Go. I love that Twitter handle. Uh, I, you know what? Mr. Clean is a goat. He is the goat. Let's get out of the way, Tom Brady. Get Mr. Clean in there for the Patriots. <laughs> what do you think of the first and second half? Uh, have pretty different storytelling. The first half seems to be more based on using the average uh, varying lifespans of people from different planets. Well, the second half is more on the overarching plot uh, of the MC and the universe. The main character, yeah. Yeah, the main character. Which uh, which I, I think we've talked about. We talked about it earlier. Like, uh, Mr. Clean, you, you're exactly right. Uh, whereas the first half is more vignettes uh, illustrating the technology and how it affects people, which is this, I think we all agree is the, probably the, str- the strong part of the, of the series. And then the second half is more uh, about the main character, how his actions affect the universe and the overall political machinations, which um, can be a little, con- which is confusing. I, I would love to see someone on the internet make a chart. Uh, <laughs> to some degree, uh, but I, I think as someone who I I loved standalone conflicts, and that show can get really up its own butt <laughs> in terms of storyline. I uh, and, and same thing with LGH too, Legend of Galactic Heroes. So I I think I was I was probably more used to the, these weird political machinations and just all the intermingling and the confusing roadways where I just kind of like, I don't understand it, but I'm enjoying it. I think that's just a, it's, that's a personal thing for me. Yeah, I mean, I, to be fair, I didn't hate any, any of the part of it. I didn't really hate the second half so much as I just didn't like the pacing, the way it was paced. It felt mm-hmm. uh, like I didn't really think it through. I mean, I don't know if that's quite a fair accusational level since, you know, I don't make anime myself. I don't know how the process works really. Um, but it did feel like it was a little poorly planned out and poorly uh, poorly placed. It's a flawed masterpiece. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, the one thing um, uh, that we noticed was it was very difficult to find any background information for the show, besides, you know, obvious. You know, there's a madhouse where it's directed by Yuasa, and we know his stuff. We couldn't really find a lot of, you know, interviews about this work specifically. It all seemed... It's probably thrown together really fast, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, everyone. I mean, everything we were able to find translated seemed like it was, you know, Tommy Galaxy onward, and you know, the surge of Devilman popularity. Uh, so it was like the uh, the Blu-ray by Discotech, which you should absolutely pick up. Uh, was released yep. about two or three years ago at this point. Um, it's it's only got the show itself. It's got you know, clean opening, clean ending, but there's no interviews. There's no behind the scenes. And it's just, it's very difficult to find anything is in it, English. Is there not even, like, because um, I know in some of the discotheque releases, they'll have, like, an essay written by somebody like Mike Tool or somebody else. Like, there's nothing like that on the Kaiba release? No. So, so if, if anybody has any, like, original works and maybe translated, uh, any, like, a source for that, uh, any links to anything or scans of anything, you know, back from the heady days of 2008, uh, I at least would be very interested in seeing that. So if anybody wants to share anything with me, please, please do, because it is tough to find good Kaiba information out in the wild. Yes, uh, please send that information to me as well. Uh, well, uh, do we want to kind of have uh, kind of a final thoughts or uh, and, and kind of wrap it up? 
Edwin, how much did you hate the show? Yeah, it's like a it's like a six out of ten for me. Okay. It's not a bad show. It's just it's just flawed. Yeah, it's good but flawed. That's all I gotta say. And it's got a unique art style. That's always a draw for me whenever there's like a new show. I mean the the soundtrack probably carries half of it for me. <laughs> it's such a fantastic soundtrack. We didn't talk about the music. We didn't talk. Now now we are. Yeah. <laughs> We didn't talk about the... I'm sorry, listeners. This is a premature wrap-up. We have to talk about at least the opening ending theme. It's, it's great. The, Move those on. two songs are beautiful. I think they are great illustrations of um, kind of the, the theme because if you listen to the lyrics, because it's one of the few animes that... Ha- I think it's all English uh, singing. Um where it's very tied to the general theme of memory and connections to others. Um, and it's just, it's a really pretty uh, song. And the, the soundtrack and music overall um, is kind of minimal uh, to a degree where just like, they'll have like, usually to emphasize either a certain character or a mood, like they'll have the singer from the opening Sing like this very uh, kind of sorrowful lullaby when uh, a sad moment happens in the show, or they'll have like this horn track that'll play whenever Vanilla is walking around, <laughs> which uh, kind of fits his character really well. Um, so even though the music is very minimal, I think it is uh, very well. Tobias, do you do you have any f- final thoughts on the show? Yeah, I, I loved it. I, I definitely agree that it's got some issues. Uh, maybe not a 10 out of 10, or maybe, maybe a 9, or a high 8, something out of 10. I don't, I don't like ratings. I think ratings are dumb in general. But it's, it's, I would say it's very high um, overall. I feel like there's so much little, so many little things the show does so well. I think the first episode, the way it just throws you into this and doesn't tell you anything, you know, it doesn't tell you anything about the bird. You don't learn who the bird is until like the last episode. A um, lot of the, a lot of the mystery before they get to the second half is through context clues, where you have to, uh, you you should not be binging this show. <laughs> do do not do not binge. The show is for. Like, maybe you watch at least maybe one or two episodes a day and then take a break or you come back to it maybe in a week. I don't know. Uh, because each episode, I would say, is, is kind of densely packed in terms of in terms of emotional drama and in terms of kind of their theming that you, you kind of can't uh, just kind of go to the next episode and you can't just kind of passively watch the show. I would say you you actively have to be watching it. Like you can't just be surfing on your iPad yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or or on your phone on Twitter while watching the show. You're going to uh, look up and you're going to see a cat dude with a little dog dude and they're making bodies. And you're like, what the hell am I watching? watching yeah. Is a for a cat? What the hell? There's a baby <laughs> riding around in a, a car with stilts? What? <laughs> and the baby smoking a cigar? What the f- visual self are just so out there that if you're not paying attention, you're going to get lost really quickly. You blink, you missed half the plot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I think uh, this is probably one of, and probably in my top three favorite Uwasa things. It's probably like this, uh, and Night is Short, Walk on Girl, and Ping Pong. 
Uh, it would be kind of my top three. And, no, this, and this is in no particular order because I think ranking stuff is annoying. Uh, but I love the show because, one, we never... It's very rare we get original works uh, with an anime. And it's great to... Even if it's flawed, like I would say this show is to a certain degree with its pacing. Yeah, it, it definitely gets points for being so different. Um, both in fact it's new and the fact that you've got this um, this unique art style. I just it's so different, so unique. You know, I'm I'm willing to accept some of the flaws just to have know that this exists. And if you are like me and loved like Legend of Galactic Heroes and Ghost in the Shell standalone complex, uh, with kind of complex theming and narrative and examining themes, you will probably love Kaiba, like I do. So I would highly recommend uh, if you like those type of sh- if you like those type of shows where it examines uh, themes of politics and uh, class, uh, and uh, if you grew up loving uh, classic sci-fi novels from like Isaac Asimov or Ray Bradbury, uh, please check Kaiba out. It's pretty much available everywhere. Uh, my favorite. Uh, uh, Distributor of anime in the United States, Discotech, put out a wonderful Blu-ray. I highly recommend you go pick it up. It's also available on Crunchyroll. It's available on Verve. I believe it is also on Retro Crush, which is like the new uh, streaming services of late. And it's also on Amazon Prime as well. So you can go check it out. It's only 12 episodes. Uh, They're they're dense episodes, but uh, I I think it's, it's worth your time. Yeah, have either one of you tried Retro Crush yet? Yeah. Is it uh, is it decent? It's alright. That's the job. Yeah, it, isn't it? It's like, it's like completely, it's free, right? You can just access it? Yeah, you, you, you just have to set up an account, I believe. Yeah. I, no, not even. Yeah. I think uh, I, I think it's kind of limited. I think there's only like a, an iTunes, a Google Play app, and a Roku app, it looks like. So you can't just stream it on their website, it looks like. You have to have the app. They don't even have a website available yet. The website exists, but it just links to the apps. I feel like they should have just waited. They they probably thought, well, not a lot of people use desktop, nor people in the, are mobile. Um, even though I, I agree with you, Edwin, I think they should have waited. I mean, it seems like a good start. Most people kind of use you know, people. People have access to Roku's and, and you know streaming boxes, so eh, yeah, it works. It's a start. Um, but um, yeah, just uh, in general, this show is pretty easy to find. Uh, thankfully, yep. so uh, yeah, go check Kaiba out. Give it a three episode rule. If you don't like it after the third one, you probably. Won't like the rest, so trying to save you some time, if, guys. Uh, if episode three doesn't wreck you emotionally, don't talk to yeah. me. Don't talk to me. Episode three is Chronicles Boots. If you're not crying about into that, I don't want to talk to you no more. But with that, I believe we're going to call it an episode. So why don't we go around the virtual table and uh, give out some plugs. So, uh, Tobias, where can people find you? I am on Twitter, as usual, spending way too much time. Uh, my handle is at Reverend underscore Tobias. Nice. Um, and Edwin, uh, where can people see your wonderful antics? Do you follow me at 
at BebopSock on Twitter. Nice. And uh, you could also check out, if you were interested in video games, I would highly recommend Edwin's uh, gaming channel with uh, fellow uh, friends and uh, co-founders of Third Impact Anime, uh, Ryan and Will, their channel Midshelf Gaming. Uh, it's a pretty good YouTube channel. I highly recommend it. Didn't you guys just put out an episode? I don't know what you're talking about, okay. but yeah. <laughs> and you can find me, uh, dub, uh, myself, Bill, on Twitter at WBForeman, F-O-R-E-M-A-N-999 on Twitter, where I am mostly retweeting things and uh, probably annoying people about Lupin, as I do with Tobias in almost every podcast episode. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Bill. I enjoy I enjoy your love of Lupin. Oh, thanks. Thanks, friend. I'm glad that somebody gets to enjoy anime around here. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can also uh see my written work on our website because I am the czar of writing here at Third Impact Anime at our website www.thirdimpactanime.com. Uh, recently, Sully and Austin have taken up the writing mantle. Uh, Austin wrote a really good article about uh, supporting uh, your artist alley, people that we would normally see at conventions, but in this crazy time of COVID-19, almost every convention has pretty much shut down. Um, so go support uh, artists if you can. If you have a favorite artist or maker, go support them. Uh, and Sully did a really good article about how to uh, deal with the cabin fever uh, of COVID as an otaku slash anime fan. So I would highly recommend those articles. They are very good reads. And I'm hoping to do more writing in the future. I just need to kick my butt to go do it. And I think with that, we will call it a day, gentlemen. Thank you for being on the episode. And thank you for hosting, Bill. Cool beans, Bill. Cool beans. That's your nickname. Cool beans, Bill. <laughs> cool beans, Billiam. <laughs> and uh, with that, uh, have a wonderful. Thanks for checking us out, and uh, uh, go watch Kaiba. Bye.